You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Soupcast, coming to you from Archaeosoup Towers. By popular demand, we're taking selected videos from the Archaeosoup back catalogue and bringing them to you as convenient podcasts. As the name implies, with Archaeosoup you get a bit of everything thrown into the pot. Archaeology, discussion, humour and debate. You can find out more at archaeosoup.com. So sit back, relax and enjoy our hearty helping of Archaeosoup. Hello and welcome back to Watching Brief for the week of the 20th of December 2021. Uh, I am joined as ever by my amazing co-host Mr Andy Brockman. Uh, Good afternoon Andy. Good afternoon from Plague City. (laughs) Plague City indeed yes. Uh, For for our viewer at home uh, uh, London is, uh, is a hot spot. A global hotspot, in fact, world-beating, one might say at the moment, uh, when it comes to the uh, Omicron uh, variant. Uh, but uh, here, at least at Archeo Soup Towers, we, we, we're, we're getting in the festive mood. We're, we're slightly more decorated than Mr Brockman appears to be. And um, and also, the in-laws are on their way. Oh, well, I, I've got, I'm, as, you, as you might guess from the, um, the, the bottle of whiskey on the shelf behind me, I'm going to be absolutely lit up later Christmas <laughs> night. Uh, <laughs> Andy, the red-nosed archaeologist, had <laughs> a very show. Uh, yes, well, well, in in in, in, place, a, yeah. <laughs> in our case, um, uh, yes, they've just jo- they've just boarded the ferry about half an hour ago uh, from uh, Northern Ireland, so uh, it's going to be great to see them. Um, yeah, I guess we'll see what happens in terms of Christmas lockdowns, though. I mean, that might be on the cards. We may be they may be with us into January. Who knows? Well, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm surprised to hear actually you're 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 you're, you're not flying the in-laws in by reindeer sleigh, given your headwear. And well, I, yeah, I mean, I know this this hat does give me a certain amount of of uh, of power, but at the moment I'm trying to just maintain a stable internet connection for our Zoom call. So, so, so no, they're getting the ferry and they'll be here. Like, like, like Father Christmas, I'll believe that when I see it. Um, as will I. As will I. Um, now, uh, this week we have... Anyway. Yeah, regardless of, of whether we're in a plague city or, or wearing magical hats, uh, we have our ongoing watching brief. And um, uh, we have a couple of stories that, that may well bring a smile to your face, uh, or, or indeed as... A... Or a tear to your eye. <laughs> or a tear to your eye. Potentially, potentially, yes. Yeah. So it's, you know, it depends on, how you, on how, you, uh, how you view it. It's a bit like an onion in that sense. You know, nicely cooked onion in butter, very sweet, oh, delicious. But a raw onion can be a bit acerbic and make you cry, perhaps. Uh, but uh, uh, before, before that, though, before we, we, we dive into those two segments, the second of which, incidentally, has a special guest this week as well, uh, who may also be joining us for the recording of the Muppet of the Month um, segment. I just like to highlight um the link of the week uh, this week is it's a bit of fun as i say we're in christmas week and it is a link highlighting a fairly uh, you know relatively old build actually so this, this is this is a story that they've picked up on this year this website but i think this is from a couple of years ago uh where uh, an amazing lego model was built that that encompasses the entire sequence of events in the opening temple uh, escape in the beginning of raiders of the lost ark so it's it's a bit of fun, a bit of Lego. You mean you mean the you mean you mean you mean the, the sequence when Indy stealing indigenous culture? Uh, yeah, well, actually, interestingly, interestingly, um, uh, you can get plaques on Etsy for for your um, uh, for your uh, replicas of, of Indiana Jones's treasures, and people on those plaques, I think they label them as uh, having been reclaimed by reclaimed by Indiana Jones. So reclaimed from I don't know uncivilized people who knows so it's 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 don't think about it it's Indiana Jones it's Christmas it's Lego <laughs> shush one million records of archaeological finds made by public now recorded it doesn't necessarily make sense objectively that sentence I think uh, as certainly uh, maybe out of context but uh, uh, today uh, uh, that is to say seven days ago at the British Museum Arts Minister Lord Parkinson of Whitley, Whitley Bay as in Whitley Bay a few miles from me crikey Lord Parkinson is that a real person 
It's, it's called levelling up. You, 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 you can become a, you two can become a member of the House of Lords if you cite somewhere in the northeast. Wow. Okay. Good crikey. Oh yeah. Uh, Lord Parkinson, anyway, of Whitley Bay launched the Treasure Annual Report for 2019 and the Portable Antiquities PAS Annual Report for 2020. Uh, these showed that uh, 49,045 archaeological finds were made um, and recorded throughout the first year of the pandemic. This number is a little lower than the previous years, as opportunities for metal detectorists to record their finds were limited due to lockdown measures and the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. However, in amongst all of the all of the the, the documentation was the the, the headline uh, that the one millionth record logged on the PAS database was a copper alloy medieval harness pendant, not pedant, as I wrote in in our agenda. And uh, not pedant, as you yeah, had yeah, in the original yeah, time. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> pendant found uh, in a place called Binbook. Uh, in Lincolnshire. This is uh, accession number NLMB7AFF3 for those of you who are interested at home. Now, interestingly, they go on to say that over one and a half million finds have been recorded by the PAS, but some database records include more than one item. So this isn't the one millionth artifact, this is the one millionth record. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas and Merry Christmas to the PAS and all the hardworking <laughs> fellows and, 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 and so on. Look, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I, and, and I mean that, of course. The thing is, this is an exercise that happens every year when um, the PAS puts out a press release about how many fines have been made and logged mm -hmm. in the previous year. Just, 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 just to explain to our, our, our viewer, in case anyone's not familiar, the the PAS or Portable Antiquities Scheme is a scheme that is administered from the British Museum. Yes. Um, and it does two things. Uh, it has a network of what are called fines liaison officers to whom uh, members of the public can voluntarily report archaeological finds that they make uh, out while they're out and about. Mm -hmm. um, it is not just about metal detecting, although it was set up as a in the mid-1990s as a response to the rise in metal detecting in the sense that many, many archaeological finds were going unrecorded um, and disappearing into private collections without ever being seen or heard of by archaeologists. Mm. Um, it's as, as I said, it's a voluntary scheme. Um, Fires Lays officers log the artefacts. They go onto an open source database where they're available for anyone to see and to use for research. And in fact, if you want access to the high level data, like precise location and so on, you can uh, register as a bona fide researcher. Mm. And many, many people do. Um, you know, uh, for example, a good friend of, uh, uh, of the show, uh, Rev Ellis, is currently completing a PhD on Iron Age uh, metal, uh, animals and Iron Age metal finds, um, and um, is drawing heavily on PAS material for that, mm. so there, you know, there, there's a, 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 a very um, you know, a, 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 there's a community of researchers who basically rely on the on the on the PAS for information. Um, it also off, offers basic, although um, you have to be careful how you use it. For example, um, distribution charts mm. in particular, uh, of particular kinds of find, mm -hmm. uh, are heavily reliant on reports to the PAS. Mm. The, some archaeologists would argue the downside to it is that, um, first of all, it gives undue uh, prominence to metal detecting um, because other kinds of finds um, are also reportable. Yeah. Uh, there are other kinds of portable antiquity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but the main one is that it's a voluntary scheme and still doesn't catch everything. No. Um, no. And, well, and, and in fact... Well, I mean, you know, there are anecdotal reports of people, who, for example, refuse to report to the PAS or refuse to report accurately to the PAS because they're afraid of losing permissions because uh, site uh, it might draw attention to a site which then becomes scheduled, yeah. which means that means then they wouldn't be allowed to detect on it, and so on mm. and so on and so on. So mm. um, it's it's uh, and and also um, again, there's a there's a, um, a a lobby. I won't say how large it is in archaeology that suggests that the whole thing is actually far too permissive, mm. and that mm. uh, at the very least, finds um, because they are of a collective heritage should be it, uh, it should be compulsory to report finds if mm. you find something. 
Well, and it's interesting. Uh, first of all, I should say uh, it looks like the press release uh, misspelled uh, the find location. It wasn't Binbrook, it's Binbrook. With an R, Binbrook. Okay. I double-checked its location. Yeah. Um, so that's Binbrook yeah. in Lincolnshire. Uh, secondly, it, it's interesting how in... So in this press release, they... As you say, because of this this prominence and because of the fact that it's voluntary and the fact because the people have to volunteer their discoveries as well and not come you know come to a, an arrangement, for example, with the landowner, um, then uh, you know, for example, they have to include in the statement things like greatly uh, you know, metal detectorists greatly adding to our understanding of Britain's past. And uh, uh, there was a, there was another story. Um, uh, uh, recently as well which was very similar um where i saw people commenting saying yes but what not not how much is this find worth but what is it where is it from what does it tell us about you know it is it's it yeah. arguably the pas does skew and as in a way and in a way is encouraged to skew by the nature of how it works how people view uh, the artifactual history of this country. Um, just also as well, a little extra bit of, of information about the, uh, the, the, the copper alloy pendant. Um, it's, it was me medieval, but it specifically dated to the, uh, to the late uh, 14th century, so 1350 to 1400 um, in, in terms of date. Ah, and Michael Lewis, head of the PAS, said, each find was part of the great jigsaw puzzle of our past. Now, Again, it's really interesting because you know, is, 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 is the, we always come back to this with the PAS, don't we? Is this, is this simply the lesser of two or, or maybe uncountable evils in that sense? Because having, having this slightly blingy relationship with, with, with artifacts and, and, and records of artifacts um, not only highlights value and individual... I don't know, I suppose, I suppose individual um, uh, named discoverers and discoveries, as opposed to stories that those uh, artifacts are attached to. But also it, it continues to encourage people like, for example, the head of the PAS, to use language which is actually quite outdated. I mean, back in the 1980s, archaeologists were deconstructing the notion that archaeology is in fact something there to be reconstructed, that there is, for example, one truth to be found, that, you know, that, that a jigsaw puzzle, or that, or that I, I think Shanks and Tilly, for example, challenged the notion that um, that the archaeologists are, are akin to Sherlock Holmes, that we can come in and with the right evidence we can distill, you know, everything down to a precise notion of what exactly happened with regards to, for example, if you want to, to use this term, our past. You know, in terms of, that, that's a very broad story, isn't it, our past? But, or, or, you know, a murder site, for example, or, you know, whatever, or, you know, a, a pile of animal bones from a farm. The, the real truth is... The archaeology it, it, it is a it's a photo album where most of the pictures are missing, <laughs> and we're trying to understand what happened in previous generations and and so on and so forth. And I can't I, I just sort of find myself wondering, um, as good and as necessary as this work is, is it again this relationship between archaeologists, metal detectorists, and the media that results in something that that that's at the very least theoretically unsound. And at the very worst, something which makes us all think about, ooh, shiny, as opposed to, ooh, valuable. That's a really that's a, that, that's a really interesting point. It does go right to the, to, to the core of this particular argument. I'll I'm, I'm, I'm make, make a few points, really, and, I, and, we're, and we're not going to resolve this whole issue just in a 15-minute you know, conversation Are we not? On, 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 on what you're No, we're not. No, oh, sorry about. OK. That's um, <laughs> <laughs> my Christmas ruined, OK? <laughs> Sorry. Um, take no. that off my wish list. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, resolve the relationship between archaeologists, metal detectorists, the public, and the media. And while I'm at it, unify quantum yeah. and... Uh, and um, that's... Look, exactly. Gold, yeah. it, quantum theory and... It, it, um, was it? Was it? Was it the one? The big, the big, big and small physics. There you go. Just, look, 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 just, take, just take comfort. <laughs> just take comfort. Just take comfort that in some part of the multiverse we've done just that. Okay. 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 Um, right. Look. Um, in, in, in this part of the multiverse, um, the 
<laughs> the, the, the PAS only ever papered over the cracks of a very fractious relationship. Yeah. Right? There, there, there are archaeologists who will ban metal detecting outright. There are others who see it as a very welcome a, a additional tool mm-hmm. to research and at all points in between. Mm-hmm. Um, the PAS, like any entity, puts out positive stories to justify its existence and increase its profile. And, uh, and, and it, it, this is coming at a time when um, we've just, as we've just seen, you know, museums are shutting again through staff shortages. The, the economics of the cultural sector is fraught to say the least. Mm. Um, and because of COVID, apart from anything else, uh, and, and as the press release, release alluded to, um, the PAS depends a lot on literally face-to-face recording by fines liaison officers working with the people reporting the fines, primarily metal detectorists. Mm. So the fact they've not been able to do that for much of the last two years um, has uh, create, raises all sorts of questions. For example, while metal detecting was allowed, members of uh, FLOs weren't able to record. So how much has gone unrecorded? Should metal detecting have been banned as it was at parts of the lo- during parts of the lockdown. Mm. Mm. Um, should it have been banned outright because of the, you know, the fact that the, the scheme that was set up to monitor it, if you like, um, wasn't available to, to do that monitoring, except that it's not statutory, it's voluntary. Yeah. So therefore, you know, there's no, in a sense, that I, I've answered my own question. There was no, there's no justification for that. They could, can- they could cancel metal detecting on health grounds, not on heritage grounds. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's, um, well, it, 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 well, it's not easy. No. Well, and, and the funny thing is that a, 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 a friend uh, commented on this when, it, when the story first came out uh, last week, and they said, they messaged saying, is this a good news story or not? And, and that's more or less, I think, where an awful lot of archaeologists are. And this isn't about enmity with, with metal detecting. It's more about the, um, the, the, the halfway house that we find all, ourselves in yeah. in terms of how we deal with all this stuff. Um, uh, and and what, a note, what a note for that particular Christmas anou- announcement for us to end on, I suppose. <laughs> well, all, all, I, all, all I would say is, uh, well, there's a number of things. First of all, we're awaiting the uh, response of the Department of Culture, Media and Sport to a consultation on the future of the Treasure Act. Mm. And that's the other half of the PAS's work. Um, although it doesn't formally administer the Treasure Act, the British Museum does host the uh, Treasure Advisory Committee, mm. um, which is the le- a legal entity which handles fines under the Treasure Act. And uh, the fines liaison officers write specialist reports about treasure fines. Mm. So they are, they are involved in that process, although it's not part of the PAS's role, um, original role. Um, and um, the consultation was on the basis that the Treasure Act um, is going to tighten up the definition of treasure so that it's no longer something purely of precious metals, but something of historical value. Mm. Um, and uh, the argument is that that will catch more fines. It will prevent the sale of nationally important fines like the Crosby Garrett helmet, um, which was sold privately mm-hmm. because it had no precious metal and is now disappeared into a collection and has, has been seen in public a couple of times, but it's mm-hmm. not part of a national collection like the British Museum or, or, the, or, or, the, or the Museum in Carlisle, which would be the closest major museum to where it was found. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, we're, we're awaiting that, um, and there's an ongoing debate in archaeology. I mean, uh, my sense, and it's only a sense, is that views in archaeology about metal detecting have hardened a little bit in the last couple of years, simply because of the growth of large-scale metal detecting rallies. Yeah. Which, again, the PAS has a very fraught relationship with. They don't support rallies, which can produce. Uh, could potentially hundreds of fines, which would just overwhelm the ability of a single, you know, local fines liaison officer to to log. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, they um, individual metal detectorists at rallies asked to report fines individually, um, and it goes to the root of how many fines by metal detectorists are actually reported to the PAS. Mm. And I would just um, point people really to. 
uh, two papers, one from December 1916 um, by Sam Hardy, um, who's a specialist in uh, conflict antiquities, but also the, the legal legal issues behind fines and um, and, and um, fines reporting and so on. Who wrote a paper um, analysing the open source data on metal detecting for cultural property, as he puts it in the article, and estimates tries to estimate the scale and intensity of metal detecting and the and, and the quantity of metal detected cultural goods. Um, basically just try to get a handle on how much was how much was being found as opposed to how much was being reported yes and um, and there was a, a, a um it, and that was seen broadly as being anti anti permissive view of, of of metal detecting um a number of uh, researchers uh who work with pas material in and, and including michael lewis the head of the pas um, wrote a response to that paper um, called The Complexities of Metal Detecting Policy and Practice, a response to Samuel Hardy. Um, that was published in 2017. Those are probably the two clearest academic statements of both sides of the argument. Um, and I'd urge people who are interested in the subject to look behind the press releases and go back and read those papers and maybe others uh, that they might discover consequently and um, and, and make the, uh, make your make your own mind up but um, you know a press release doesn't necessarily equal good, good thing no and as you say we're we're not going to resolve it today unfortunately absolutely not alas, absolutely not alas. no, no. And, and again i have no no and, and again i have to add the caveat as we always do on these things that in the uk at the moment metal detecting there is a little bit from uh, jurisdiction to jurisdiction for example the situation in scotland is different to the situation in england uh, and the pas really covers uh, covers england um but um the metal detecting with the permission of a landowner and observing things like the uh, ancient monuments and archaeological areas act and uh, the treasure act is a perfectly legal hobby mm. um, and um, there are many metal detectorists who cooperate with archaeologists work with archaeologists as a an important part uh, effectively of the geophysics team mm. um, in, including you know, uh, petuaria where, where we were in the summer mm. um, there were metal detectorists working uh, as an integral part of the project and yeah. good for, and, and it was very good that they were yes yes so we are joined for our second segment of the week by the inimitable, the wonderful, the excellent, the amazing Neil Ackerman. Uh, good afternoon, Neil. How are you doing? I'm all right. That's probably the best intro I've ever had and will ever have. So thank you for that. <laughs> well, it, it, it's, it's, it's Christmas. We're it's being Christmas. To everybody. But also, to be fair, you are, you are the, the only recipient of the Muppet of the Month award to ever have requested it in order to print it off. I had to design the whole thing for you in order to have it on your office wall. So um, you are, you are still, a... Uh, still on the bookshelf in my office. Exactly, yeah. You're in a, you're in a, you are well, well deserving of the introduction. <laughs> um, but this week, you're going to be helping us uh, discuss someone who was almost the Muppet of the Month, actually. Uh, but then we realised that this could actually have some fairly serious and interesting undertones and connotations. And that is the story um, from the Isle of Sky guy where uh, to quote uh, msn.com um, Scott was and well a Scott not Scott a, it says here Scott was fined uh, a Scott was fined 18,000 pounds for destroying an ancient can to help him in his building project if I switch over to uh, the website Scottish construction now um, it, it says Ian uh, McInnes used the earth from upper tot Cairn on the north uh, of Skye to help with a building project elsewhere on his land. The 59-year-old pleaded guilty to damaging the protected monument when he appeared at Portree, I'm guessing, Sheriff Court on the 25th of August on Tuesday, and he was fined a total of £18,000. Mr McInnes owns the land next to the A855 near Upper Tot on Skye, where the Upper Tot Cairn stands. Uh, Historic Environment Scotland had written had written to Mr McInnes on three separate occasions about the existence of the can, with the most recent letter being sent in 2015. The agency also carried out uh, routine site visits every 10 years. Uh, but he went on, nonetheless, in 2018, um, 
to uh, to excavate part of uh, the monument between the 1st and the 12th of December. So it's taken a couple of years, probably because something else happened. <laughs> I don't know what's happened in the past couple of years uh, to get around to dealing with this. Um, but uh, Andy Shanks, uh, uh, procurator fiscal for Grampian Highlands and Islands said, as the owner of the land this ancient monument sits on, it was Duncan McInnes's duty to help protect it. Instead, he showed a complete disregard for its importance when he dug up, uh, dug for soil uh, for, uh, dug for soil and damaged the upper top can. Can you just explain for, for, for my benefit actually, um, and, and perhaps for, for our viewer too, what kind of what kind of um, a uh, 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 historical monument are we actually talking about here? So date, construction, mm -hmm. use. What, 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 what are we talking about when we're talking about a Neolithic Cairn in a Scottish context? Um, it's a funerary monument. Um, so big pile of stones, big large construction um, that's usually visible from fairly far away mm. with uh, a chamber of sorts um, with bodies inside uh, in various stages of decomposition it's quite common for there to be quite whole skeletons at the back of the, the tomb um, and then kind of disarticulated bones so they're kind of shifting bodies back as they decompose um, mm. but yeah it's essentially a, a massive tomb mm. And um, uh, often, I know in other parts of the UK, you'll find these on ridges in the landscape, so they're visible from, as you say, from fairly far away, possibly linked with community, community identity and acknowledgement. Um, and it's, uh, I don't know if it's the case necessarily uh, in the on sky, but certainly in some other Neolithic instances, it's likely that body parts were being moved through the community as well, uh, maybe being yeah. passed around ritually and then being returned and swapped out for body parts and bones, particularly in, in these tombs. Um, but, uh, but yeah, how does this read to you? Does this seem like a, like a typical farmer authority interaction? Um, well, he's obviously been told several times what it is mm. and I assume in that was told the consequences of you know not adhering to the act that kind of covers scheduled monuments in Scotland mm. the, the historic environment in Scotland do kind of keep a fairly close eye on things as I said they kind of site visit every 10 years and they can see how what changes there are um, obviously local authority archaeologists are around kind of closer to it and we'll probably pick these things up or often pick these things up sooner. Um, when I was at Aberdeenshire Council, we'd sometimes have members of the public saying, oh, there's a stone circle in this farmer's field. They seem to be plowing close to it or, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> they built it in the 90s. Um, but yeah, they're, they're plowing close say. to it. <laughs> um, it's, you know, just to kind of check that they're within the rights to, to be doing what they're doing, um, which almost always they are. Uh, you can see the kind of the frustration sometimes if you if you have a field with a uh, scheduled monument right in the middle of it and you're trying to maximise, you know, the economy of your land, having mm. to go around it all the time with your plough is quite annoying. But I think in, in general, you know, it's farmers tend to be fairly connected to their land and may have been on it for generations and I think tend to be more mindful of these things in general mm. and their kind of their obligations to the land in a longer term mm. Mm. what one, one of the things that um caught our eye looking at the story was that in england there have been a couple of similar instances in the last few years that have been prosecuted by historic england mm. um there was a case of uh, damage to office dyke mm. uh, on the uh, english welsh border um, recently, and also um, a Neolithic henge monument that was badly damaged in Somerset by another farmer. Mm. Um, now, again, the, the motivation in these things is often un unclear, and uh, particularly um, for anybody that wasn't actually in court to listen to the evidence, uh, which is never you know, fully reported. But uh, in, in your experience, have you found, or are you aware of any instances where, for example, farmers... Um, Take the take, take the the annoyance that you've just described of having to, you know, keep a certain you know, safe distance from a from from a monument when they're plowing, for example, and so it's just sort of um, you know, 
F this for a game of soldiers, I'll take the hit and because my land's more important to me than th th this abstract monument that isn't any economic benefit to me. Yeah, and I think there's partly that. And I think there's also partly a bit of kind of Cape Bat-Bishing kind of understand of this is my land and I'm being told what to do with it by people mm -hmm. who do, don't live here, aren't farmers. You know, I'm, I'm being told by a centralised body who are very distant that I can't and can use my land in, in certain ways. Mm. Um, and, mm. you know, I, I, I kind of have some sympathies with why they might get into that mindset. And I think that's certainly an aspect that the kind of the wider archaeological community needs to be a bit better at mm. kind of doing. And I think, I think in general, it's getting better, but there, there is a, a very much kind of, we know what's on your land better than you know what's on your land, and we know mm. what you should be doing with that, which mm. often doesn't help. No. It's interesting, because in, in the case of, of the, uh, and he said the Watts Dyke, that's a different dyke, the Offers Dyke um, damage, it, I seem to recall the, the landowner made the case that he wasn't aware he wasn't aware that this thing was was a monument, and yet uh, I remember at the time uh, you and I, Andy, we, we were skeptical about whether or not it's possible to buy that land and not have some sort of notification come with the legal documentation. You know, it's basically something that goes, eh, eh, eh. you know, this is this is important. You cannot, you know, for example, bulldoze it uh, as the guy did. Um, well, I mean, apart from anything else, the the the, the, the Defra Magic uh, Land Database includes things like scheduled monuments. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So if you do, if you do, yeah. If you do, it, there. Are, it's not just heritage bodies. It's also other other yeah. land awareness will bring that to your attention. Um, yeah. And but and but 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 nonetheless, that isn't the same sort of communication that I guess, I guess an archaeologist might want to bring to the table. Just saying, this is important. Don't touch it. Is not the same as talking about what it means in the landscape, why it was there, why it might be good to, ha to keep it there. Um, is, it, is, that, is that sort of maybe something that, that uh, and th this is why this didn't become a Muppet of the Month, incidentally, for people at home. Um, it's because actually this feels like it, th this is an element of maybe asking the question, what else can our, could we do in our communication to make sure that the, the people are more inclined to be sympathetic and empathetic, I suppose, actually, to to the historic environments around them, and therefore actually to their fellow, you know, their fellow citizens and uh, fellow human beings in that sense. Uh, I mean, what, what uh, do you think, is it even practical to have like a sit down face to face when someone buys a, a plot of land like that? I mean, I, I think in, in Scotland there's about 8,000 scheduled monuments Yeah. Mm. in total. And I mean, some of them are owned by the public, and but most of them, I think, are on privately owned land. And mm. I, d I mean, I don't know if historic environment Scotland do get notified if someone buys the land. I, I, I don't know if there would be a legal obligation by the, mm. the buyer to do that, but there is a legal obligation from the solicitors to notify someone if they're buying land with a scheduled monument on it. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So, but I mean, the amount of paperwork you get when you're buying land in that circumstance it would be easy for that to get lost mm. Um, mm. and isn't necessarily going to be the forefront of anybody's mind when they're they're going through that process no um, mm. but, but, well not yeah. this as well because often you buy land in order to do something with it yeah don't you you know you, know, you, yeah. Know, yeah. you don't buy land to not be able to do something with it which is yeah um, problematic mm -hmm. i mean, I mean if, 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 Again, we're, we're only going by press reports, yeah. um, but it appears that in this case, um, the landowner appeared to want some, effectively some hardcore to help build a shed. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it was presumably quicker to go to the local Neolithic care than it is to go to the local builder's yard if you're you know, in, on, the, on the north coast of Sky. Well, and, and it was a substantial um, pile, nine foot tall off the ground. So it was, mm. it was a big a big pile of potential hardcore in that sense, um, just sitting there. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean I, I'm interested in what you, you were saying about the sort of relationship between um, historic Scotland and communities and, uh, and, and, and landowners and so on. And I'm aware that, you know, again, um, 
speaking from south of the border, there's often um, a uh, any, anyone that's been involved in planning issues. I've, I've, I've been involved in several long years. Um, is aware that you 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 happily live in, ex exist in an archaeological bubble where everybody cares about heritage and, and and wants to share and wants to make heritage part of the community, and then you come across an architect or a councillor or a developer who just sees this as sort of um, I won't use the word woke uh, now, but, but uh, as a bunch uh, uh, as sort of touchy-feely nonsense that's standing in the way of improving the local economy and making lives better for local people. And you have to find a way of negotiating that. And I, I wonder, is, is that the kind of thing that maybe, uh, and I'm throwing it out to all three of us, really, you know, is, is this something archaeologists need to be aware of and maybe learn to deal with in a more effective way? Right. So from my experience of living in Orkney, where a massive amount of archaeology here um, in a place that is pretty much all agricultural land. And there is within the kind of ordinary community, tensions sometimes come up between the two. Um, and there is the kind of, again, the idea of a bunch of folk from down south um, to central belt of Scotland, which is as down south to Orkney as London is, you know, it's, it's a similar kind of uh, thing where they're standing in the way of Orkney developing and moving on as it wants to by holding it back. Um, so you've, you've kind of got the two extremes right next to one another in Orkney because if the, the population is decent for a Scottish island, but we are all kind of mixing together. My first summer when I was doing my undergrad here, I was working in a pub and I was being told by builders about times where they kind of, they were digging and found some human bones and just kind of mm. shove them back in again and cover it up because it would stop the job and they didn't really mind either way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's there and it's, it's, I think no one's ever going to all agree on how that should be and, and everyone has their views on how land should be used and that's, that's kind of healthy and fine. Um, I think it's the kind of the looking down your nose at people who are not archaeologists mm. and telling them what their land means, mm. which I, I don't know if that actually happens consciously from an archaeology point of view, but it's certainly perceived like that. Mm. And if that's the perception, then that's kind of on us to, to, to change. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's interesting as well because... You know, we, I think we all hear horror stories along those lines uh, in terms of human remains, in terms of when I was living and working in York, there were stories of, of you know, because lots of York is anoxic, um, you know, leather and, uh, and organic goods were just being tossed into the skip and covered up quickly, you know, because, oh, no, we can't, we can't afford to stop for this. And and so, I, I, I mean, yes, absolutely. One of the so, you know, when I was talking about this idea of having a face to face and talking, uh, trying to describe the meaning of a monument, for example, well, I, th I think what I was imagining would be would be a would be a a conversation, not a not a prescription. So there's, there's that there's that question of how we how we actually meet with people and, and talk to them about what is their land and what is their history and what is their their place where they live, um, or for example, what is their building site? You know if you're talking to the gaffer or whatever. But but then also as well, there's this, there's this other thing as well, frankly, it's provision. It's the ability to say, don't worry, look, there's there's a wee pot of money back there. We can pull on that from London or whatever, or from, or from Edinburgh or something, and it can be used to mitigate maybe a day initially, a day's uh, investigation, and you don't you don't have to hide the human remains. Um, that would be useful, but that that's a whole that's a whole policy structure. That's a, you know uh, the the obviously we do a little bit like with our first segment. We're not going to solve that today, Andy, are we? On the, <laughs> but uh, but the thing is that the human remains thing is worrying because uh, you know when you find human remains, uh, they're investigated initially as to whether or not they're recent in terms of a recent murder perhaps or you know they, they are problematic and so if, if 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 because of this these interactions we're actually discouraging people from maybe reporting potential crimes and this is this is hyper hypothetical by the way you know um 
then that that's a problem, and that must come out of this interaction between between people people who genuinely want what's best for the historic environments and people who are living in that in that environment. Surely, I, I think there's also there's also there's, there is a, a matter of education about it. Mm. I mean, I mean, certainly um, in England, historic England, I'm, I'm working with uh, other uh, other. Uh, partners in other, in, in other jurisdictions in the UK um, have been developing this concept of heritage crime. Um, they've been prosecuting more cases, they've been prosecuting more cases in a high profile way, making sure they get into the national press and, um, and so on. And, and, and the idea is that, um, you know, say, for example, bulldozing a bit of office dike or a henge or, you know, in this case, a, you know, a, a Cairn and Neolithic burial monument or whatever, um, isn't victimless in that it's, first of all, it's illegal. It's against the law. It's just as illegal as getting into a, a, a car and driving off when you've had too much to drink. Mm. Um, it's an antisocial, you know, it's, it's dangerous. And it, 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 at least, you know, it's an antisocial thing to do and it's, and, it, and it's punished by a legal sanction. Um, and, and, you know, so no sympathy there, Gov, you know, especially if somebody knew it was illegal. Um, and, and and that in the end is your ultimate recourse. If you can't persuade somebody, if Parliament, Holyrood, whatever, in, 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 in in its collective wisdom has made something illegal, end of. Mm. Um, yeah. And and and, 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 and and yes, you you try and moderate it. You 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 know you you, you try and create a, a, a positive relationship with landowners and things like that. But in the end, um, if you can't achieve that, or that, or they don't want to listen, then uh, you you have to be prepared to fall back on the law. Mm. Yeah, and certainly, the historic environment in Scotland, they do before it gets to that stage mm. of prosecuting someone. There's letters of notice and yeah. kind of you're about to do something or you've started doing something yeah you know stop now we're, we're aware of what's happened yeah just yeah if you stop we're not going to go any further with it um mm. but in terms of the kind of heritage law and heritage crime i think uh historic environment scotland have only recently been given the powers to report crime directly to the prosecutor fiscal rather than having to go through police and other things so you know i mean I'm not a legal expert by any stretch of the imagination. If if I was, I'd be significantly financially better off. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, I can just so hear, my, I can hear <laughs> my grandparents. Don't do it. Don't. Sorry, go on. It's, it's probably quite in terms of the, the kind of the development of this law and how it's done legally. Is it's a good thing that there's been a prosecution fairly early on as a precedent of. You know, if if you are doing this, and historic environment Scotland are contacting you, they can then just go to the prosecutor fiscal, and you will end up in court, and you will end up with consequences. Mm. Um, so, I mean, you don't, making examples of people through law, I don't particularly ag- agree with at all. But mm. you know, it's a well publicised thing that's happened, and probably a lot of people who have sigil monuments on their land who haven't really given it much thought will now be more aware. Yeah. So that is mm. a kind of a good thing to come out of it. Mm. Um, mm. And it's, it's good to see. I mean, reporting something in 2018 and it being done in 2021, obviously with COVID in the way, that's relatively streamlined. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. it obviously has worked, mm. that, that kind yeah. of new legal setup. Uh, with mm. the struggle and so on, so that's, that's kind of good to see. I, I, and, and in fact, I, I mean, certain cases I'm aware of uh, in under English legal jurisdiction, uh, and I'm assuming it's similar. In, I, obviously, we, you do have the, the Procurator Fiscal investigating cases in, 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 in Scotland and, and, and can instruct the police, can't they, to uh, undertake certain investigations and so on. Slightly different to the way it works in, in, in England. But I, 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 either way, you, you have... Um, uh, the legal authorities have to apply things like public interest tests to as to whether it's worth actually investing the money that this investigation is going to take yeah. in the outcome. Uh, mm. So it's, it's not a given even, that, you know, even if you report something uh, up the line in, in, in that manner, that it's necessarily going to end up with a, an investigation, let alone a, a prosecution in the courts. Mm. Um, so, you know, it, it, there, there are lots of nuance, you know, lots of steps in between. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, um, I'll bring this segment to a close just by suggesting a campaign name for awareness. And maybe it should be, you see that hill over there? Maybe you should just tend your bets. Hey! Hey! Don't knock it down. Don't bulldoze it. Don't close <laughs> Thank you, Neil. Thank you for your time this afternoon. That's all right. We do have to apologise for him. He's, he, he is always like this. It's just enthusiasm. You know how it goes. <laughs> but in, in, in all seriousness, uh, thanks for joining us, because ha having that perspective, um, both of us, we, we, we were um, very keen not to be seen to be sort of, again, um, commenting on the Scottish issue from south of the border here, uh, albeit, albeit Mark's only just south of the border. Um, so, well, in the debatable lands. Actually, on this side of the country, I'm about 100, 112 miles south of the border, actually, so... Yeah. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the, um, yeah, yeah but it's, it, it's, it's, the, it's the debatable lands in the old, uh, to use the old uh, um, terms. Uh, but in all, in all seriousness, like, <laughs> thanks for thanks for joining us, because it's, it's been a really, really valuable time. This is exactly why people don't like London. Sorry, go on. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you, Neil. Thank you. Uh, See you later. <laughs> thanks for Thank you. So thank you once again to Neil Ackerman for his time. Uh, you'll be seeing him again in Muppet of the Month, uh, it's a segment that we've we've recorded with him as well, which is well worth a watch this month, I think. Uh, we had some fun. But uh, now we, we're going to just take a moment just to be uh, quite serious and, and consider um, the passing of a colleague and also uh, a supporter of the pipeline. So, uh, um, Andy, would you like to, to, uh, to explain? Yeah, I'd just like to take a, to take a moment really to... Um, appreciate the work of our late colleague, Mike Ingram. Uh, Mike was a, a well-known uh, battlefield historian, uh, a, a Ricardian, he was an expert on the Wars of the Roses, had written a number of books. Um, and he sadly died a few weeks ago of a heart attack aged only 59. Um, it's been a huge shock to the relatively small world of battlefield archaeology and battlefield guiding and, um, and but also particularly to the community in Northampton where he was um, he'd only recently become a, a, a freeman of Northampton a hereditary um, freeman of Northampton something he was very proud of um, I'm mentioning it here because Mike was a good friend of the pipeline and indirectly of, uh, of watching brief uh, we worked on a number of stories together uh, and in fact um, it was the work of Mike and his colleagues, which uh, first of all uh, helped protect the registered battlefield of Northampton. That's how I first came to know him. In fact, um, in in 2012, Northampton Borough Council were supporting a development on the site uh, on the registered battlefield, um, where to cut to the chase, all sorts of um, um, attempted manipulations of process were going on. Um, Mike had uh, been involved in research in the battlefield and turned in, actually into a campaigner on the back of it. And um, that development was eventually headed off. Uh, the battlefield is now more properly preserved and understood. It's got proper interpretation boards and so on. And um, there's a, even a, a, a Northampton uh, battle, Northamptonshire Battlefield Society, which Mike founded, um, which helps monitor that and other important battlefields in Northamptonshire, including the Battlefield of Naseby, um, Civil War Battlefield of Naseby, and another war, uh, Wars of the Roses Battlefield, Edgecote. <clears throat> so that was one aspect of uh, Mike's work, but um, he was also instrumental in leading a campaign that got the medieval Eleanor Cross in Northampton uh, properly restored. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so, uh, he is going to be a huge loss, as somebody said to me. There are they are very big shoes to fill, mm -hmm. um, and um, I think um, the last what I would say really is that Mike was the kind of person uh, who is so important in the heritage world. It was somebody who is independent but knows their stuff. Somebody who is a brilliant communicator but also isn't afraid to ruffle feathers, uh, e even among uh, what might be seen as friendly forces um, like, you know, historic England. Uh, it's making sure basically that people do their jobs 
and um, and he was always there to stand up for the heritage within the community of Northampton and the, and, and the East Midlands, but Northampton in particular. So a, a, a huge loss, not you know, um, particularly obviously to his friends and family. So I, so I think it's important at the time of the year when we're all coming together and um, enjoying uh, our friends, our families, time to be together and so on to um, remember the people who've gone. And uh, sadly, Mike is one of those, and only too recently and all too soon. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you for that, Andy. Um, <clears throat> I suppose uh, we, we'll end on that note. Uh, what, what I would say is uh, everyone, in that sense, do uh, take time to, to be grateful for what we have and who we have. And I know in some cases, family relationships certainly I, I i know from personal experience can be difficult and i'm not remotely saying that therefore uh we should all um uh, be grateful for people who who aren't necessarily the most helpful in our lives but there'll be friends there'll be people that you know there'll be there'll be people who are who 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 uh who maybe are alone this christmas who we can reach out to and just 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 be grateful for and um this that is something that's that's definitely worthwhile doing very timely reminder um, for my part, uh, as I was saying at the beginning, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, the in-laws. They're coming over, and um, we're going to have a good few days together for the first time in two years. That's that's definitely something to be grateful for. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to having, hopefully, a fairly quiet Christmas. You and I, we are planning on doing uh, a sort of Christmas, New Year, so at some point yet to really tie it down, uh, live stream quiz. I may try and rope some other people in to get involved as well. Uh, so keep an eye out for that, guys. Please. And uh, <laughs> uh, and also, uh, well, also it'll be interactive. I'm at, I'm at pardon me, anything else. I might be too hungover. You maybe maybe de well, depend depends on how things go with uh, with cabinet, doesn't it? Really. Um, well, uh, or, look, yeah. look, 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 whatever, whatever cabinet decides, I'm equipped. Right. <laughs> yeah, dude, you've got your cabinet over there. Um, yes. But also as well, as I say, check out my pit of the month, a little little extra Christmas present for you guys this week. And uh, I'll see you, uh, well, soon. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Um, uh, a merry festive season to all of you. Happy holidays, as they say. Take care. Good y'all. Good y'all. Bye-bye. This podcast episode has been produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network in collaboration with Archaeosoup Productions. Find out more podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com